This is The Ignition Show. Well, hello, everyone. Welcome to or welcome back to our podcast. My name is Chris Jansen, host of The Ignition Show, where our aim is to create meaningful conversations with switched on people about things that matter. Matter in the pursuit of your potential and igniting the flame within you to live your best and full life. I'd like to ask you to stop what you're doing for a moment and think back to four years ago, early 2016. Of course, that is if you're listening to this podcast in early 2020 when it was originally published. Do you remember where you were then? What you were involved in or what goals or aspirations you had? Does that four years seem like a long time ago or almost yesterday? No doubt much has happened to you in four years. In fact, I'd be willing to bet that not only did you do a lot in those four years, but you probably could have done a lot more if you were focused, committed, and uber purposeful about what you wanted to create or achieve. And if you think that four years is not a lot of time to achieve something big, then you're about to have your beliefs blowing up big time. Today's guest is someone who has redefined what is possible in four years. As you're about to hear, back in 2008, at the age of 22, Jeremiah Brown was feeling that his dreams of being a champion elite athlete were potentially fading. That is, until he flicked on the TV and watched athletes that looked just like him, same age, same size, same physique, compete on the world stage at the Beijing Olympics. Something clicked, or maybe snapped, in Jeremiah that day as he embarked on a remarkable odyssey to push, test, and will himself to Olympic glory just four years later. And just so you really get the level of amazing, he had never even participated, let alone competed, in the sport he chose to pursue. He had to learn it all from scratch. Whether you have fitness goals, business goals, life goals, or even Olympic goals, I hope you soak in the story and lessons from Jeremiah on how to make the impossible a dream come true in just four years. Enjoy the conversation. On today's show, we're speaking with Jeremiah Brown. To Jeremiah, reinvention and resilience are the lifeblood of progress. And as such, he spent his life harnessing the power of resilience to adapt to new environments and overcoming setbacks, including the grandest of stages, the Olympics. Jeremiah's national best-selling book, The Four-Year Olympian, tracks his odyssey going from his parents' couch to the Olympic podium in just four years, having never previously participated in his sport. Redefining the power of enduring uncertainty and trusting others, Jeremiah uses his story to inspire audiences around the world to rethink what is possible for themselves in just four years. Jeremiah, it's a great honor to have, spend time with you today. Welcome to the Ignition Show. Thanks for having me on. Yeah, my pleasure, my pleasure. And it's, uh, it was really a joy to dive into your background and more of your story beyond the, maybe the headlines that we were familiar with. And I first want to just acknowledge you and honor you for not only your incredible example of perseverance and dedication, which is obvious, to achieve the pinnacle in your sport, but also for your a shocking, to me, I wasn't expecting, your shocking honesty and vulnerability of your gut-wrenching details of your struggles, your stresses, and your self-doubts through that journey. Have you always been an open book? Or have you had to work hard at becoming comfortable with being vulnerable? I think I've always been quite open with the people I'm most close with. It's another step to write a book and leave it all out there for anyone who wants to pick it up and read it. Yeah. But I think, especially if you're writing a memoir, which is what the book is essentially, honesty is the only policy that works. The reader will see through you anyways. So you may as well um, you know, commit to being authentic and honest with it. And you've been sharing your story now for a few years. We'll get into the details of it. It was the London 2012 Olympics. So you've had lots of time to reflect on that now. We're in 2020. 
uh, and certainly as a speaker, you share your story a lot. What's the reaction that you get most from when the people hear you went from zero experience to Olympic medal in just four years? Yeah, I think it's inspiration. I think people, they attach themselves to different elements of the story, depending on where they're, where they're at in their lives. Um, they see themselves in that journey because the journey was literally from beginning to completion. So everyone is sort of somewhere on that path themselves and so when they listen to the talk they will take away well this is where i'm at and so this part of the message really resonated with me whether it was you know the first setbacks or how difficult difficult it is to actually finish something that you start you know you get so close and that that resistance that comes when you get near the finish line um, to the personal struggles you know everyone's dealing with relationship ups and downs um, you know parenting challenges so there's so much in this story, and because I give pretty much all of it and all of myself, everyone's attaching themselves to different elements of it. But overall, I think they're, you know, coming away with inspiration and maybe some reflection on, well, have I given myself the best opportunity? Have I really explored what's possible for me? Yeah, yeah, that's something what what I take away from the snippets I've seen. I haven't seen you speak live, but some of the snippets I've seen. Uh, I can imagine it's very hard to not be inspired and to really look in the mirror to say, am I really giving it all in my job or as a parent or in my own personal pursuit? Yeah. I mean, I don't want to cause anyone added stress, <laughs> but if I can, and I, it's a real responsibility to, uh, especially from the perspective of being on stage and using the medium of the keynotes, there's a responsibility to articulate that in a way that's not preachy, but just saying, you know, here's, here's an honest experience that I hope you can relate to. Yeah. Um, and then, you know, sure, if, if it causes some self-reflection, great. If it's more just a, a feeling of inspiration and you take it for a momentary, um, you know, a uh, bit of uh, uh, inspired emotion, then, and then great. But everyone will take from it what, what makes sense for them at the time. Yeah. So let's let's set the scene for those of you for those that are listening to this who aren't familiar with your story beyond what I've said in the introduction. You give us the the headline. We're gonna we'll dive into the details, but give us the headline of of your journey, literally from crazy as it sounds, from couch to Olympic podium in four years. Okay, I've done this several times, and it always seems to be longer than I intend. So let's see how I do this. We got time. time. There's no no rush. No rush. I'm gonna keep it really short, and then you can you can guide me with your questions. Uh, yeah, I had graduated university. I did a business degree. In my second year of university, my high school sweetheart and I, Amy, found out that we were going to be parents. It was a big shock to us. Our son was born, and I remember handing the baby off between classes and getting through university. And you know, when something like that happens, it makes you grow up really fast. I was I was 19 years old when my son was born, and I was playing football, and I had a full course load. I remember after football games, instead of going to the kegger parties, I was at home changing dark tar stained diapers. <laughs> <laughs> so um, after university, uh, like most people, I was thinking, okay, I got to get a job. I got to support my family. But I still had this sense of unmet possibility or potential as an athlete. So I feel like we, most of us have some big dream for ourselves whether it's in the arts or sports or some creative pursuit, whatever it might be. For me, it was to be an athlete of some distinction. But my football career was over. I had injured my shoulder. 
And then, yeah, I was lying on my couch in the summer of 2008. I watched the Canadian Olympic rowing team, the men's eight rowing team, win the gold medal. And it sparked me onto this journey of saying, well, first of all, you know, maybe I could do that. And, and honestly asking myself, well, first of all, what are the reasons why I couldn't do that? Like, are there any real reasons that would absolutely prevent me from being able to ever achieve that? So very pragmatically kind of thinking it through. And then when I couldn't find any reason why I shouldn't have an honest shot, then I shaped my whole life over the next four years towards pursuing this goal of becoming an Olympian in rowing. And that involved getting a job 4,000 kilometers across the country where the rowing team was based, the national rowing team uh, training center and saving my money and, you know, having a strategy around this, this four-year timeline to thread the needle and give myself an opportunity to make it happen. And, uh, you know, the rest is history. So everything I guess that's interesting is between where I'm leaving off now and, and the Olympic podium. But maybe you can steer me, Chris, sure, sure, where, sure. where we should go next with it. Well, you know, I think, you know, as a sporting guy myself, a kid similar to you, grew up watching the Olympics and being a bit in awe and inspired by what these amazing athletes can achieve. Um, you know, you watched, I'm assuming you watched and understood the Olympics took an unparalleled pursuit of excellence. Mm -hmm. That, that there's, a, there's an extra level of mindset, of dedication, of whatever, all the adjectives you can throw in there. I'm curious, what aspects of your journey played out kind of as you expected as on the, on the level of going for the Olympics? And what did you learn about what it really takes to pursue excellence? I think what it really takes is the ability to take a step forward and find out that it's way harder than you ever imagined. So expectations are never met, really, especially when you're trying to be world-class in anything. Um, and so the, the real superpower is to, uh, when you recoil from, that, from those first moments of, oh, wow, I bit off way more than I can chew. How do you respond in that moment, I think, is key as an individual, because there you have an opportunity now to start to build commitment and start to build resilience, which to me is a process. You're strengthening it or taking away from it over time. It's not a, a one-time event, which I think um, is troubling when we think about it that way. Uh, you wake up on Monday, okay, I commit to you know, starting this podcast, and I'm just going to do it now for the, for the next five years. And, no, you're, you're going to stumble, you're going to have step, you know, two steps back, a couple steps forward, and it's going to be this erratic you know, journey in reality. So what I learned was that it absolutely is about mindset, and you're cultivating it as you go. And every day that you go through the journey, you have an opportunity to either strengthen a little bit, or, you know, you've built up a sort of a kind of equity where you can tap into it on the days where you really need it, where you're full of quit. Um, how do you continue? And what I found is you're, you're, you're tapping back into the escalation of commitment, the, the amount of effort and time already invested. And sometimes you have to just rely on, oh, wait a minute, I've come this far. I mean, I got to get through this day. And so it's just, it's this aggregate, you know, you're pushing things forward. You're, 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 you're rolling that snowball and trying to make it bigger and bigger. And it's this whole sense of energy and momentum building. And it's a constant battle of trying to keep it, keep it going 
when at any time it feels like it can all fall backwards or fall apart. Yeah. You know, and as you're as I'm listening to you, I'm, I'm reflecting on, you know, you hear so many stories of people who have achieved the pinnacle in their, in their in sport and business, but we'll talk about sport for now. And, you know, there's maybe an assumption for many, many athletes who, you know, we watch these athletes on TV. There's an assumption maybe they've been either doing this for so, so long, or they, they have some God-given talent in a certain way, or they've got the greatest coaches and support network around them and, or the funding. And we, we know that's a, that's a big challenge for the, certainly the Canadian Olympic team. Um, so there's an, almost an assumption that they were destined to make this happen. You kind of break the mold on all of that where not only have you not even uh, not, not, never participated in your sport beforehand, but it's often rowing is often referred to as the, one of the hardest sports in the world. So it wasn't like you just kind of strolled into something that came naturally to you. Mm-hmm. When you look back on that now, do you think you were crazy at the time? Or is there something that's really just so true and aligned to, for you in that experience? Well, I mean, to the early part of your comment, I think it's yes and no. Like you, you absolutely do need the coaches, the funding, you know, the right environment. Um, but you also, you know, as an individual, you need to bring yourself, you know, to the game. Like you have to show up for sure. You know, it's interesting. Like there, there's something you said in the question that I'm trying to key in on, but kind of lost my thought there. Um, uh, sorry. I talk, maybe yeah, that's, that's good. Again. Yeah, it's okay. I, 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 and I lost it the later part of your question. Yeah, I talk, just talked about, uh, you know, there's often an assumption that kind of there's this destiny of making it, you know, making it to a certain level because you, you, you've been doing it for so long and you broke the mold and rowing is the hardest, one of the hardest sports in the world. So okay. it, it wasn't the so easiest th- path to get there. I got my, so thanks. I got my thought back. So, I mean, yes, I did this thing that is, is unique in, in having no experience and in coming into this sport uh, with this incredible goal of trying to get to the top uh, to the Olympics. But I want to stress that I was very specific, and very careful with my choices. And I had a very detailed plan to allow me um, to maximize my, my, my natural talents. Because of course, like if I was five foot four and, you know, 240 pounds, you know, maybe, maybe wrestling would have been a better opportunity. Like I, certainly chose the sport and the path that I thought was going to give me the best chance of success based on what my raw ingredients were in the moment I began. And, uh, you know, it can be fun to make jokes about it and be very light about, oh, yeah, just lying on the couch. And, you know, I, I do that for a bit of entertainment sometimes in my keynotes. But the truth is, I was very channeled in and examining and I was watching YouTube videos of rowers. I was watching their biomechanics. I was thinking about what, were, what are my strengths as an athlete that I can pull from football and hockey and these other sports. As a multi-sport athlete growing up, I did a lot of things. So I'm thinking, uh, you know, I had some cardio ability. I remember uh, dry land training and hockey. I'm like, okay, maybe I've got some kind of aerobic engine. I don't know, you know, to what extent, but I feel like I've got something there. Uh, in football, when we did powerlifting, I seemed to be able to, you know, I seemed to have good form. I remember my coaches giving me positive feedback and rowing is essentially a, a sitting hang clean. So very analytical process from the beginning so that when I made the decision, it wasn't just based on passion and inspiration. It was actually rooted in assessment. 
you know, my first job at university, university was as, as an analyst in commercial banking. So this analytical side of me, I would say, actually played one of the biggest roles in giving me the confidence that once I had made the decision, I had poured everything into being absolutely certain that this was going to be something that um, gave me the best opportunity for success based on my starting point. It wasn't just, oh, let's go try rowing today and see what happens. And oh, wow, right. isn't that great? You know, what a wonderful, let's make a movie. <laughs> no, it's, it's very calculated. And then even once I had moved to Victoria and I had this job, I was, I was managing my time. You know, my son was in daycare. I was working full time. I had to think, okay, can I get to the YMCA at lunch? And meanwhile, I'm, I'm saving all my disposable after-tax income to prepare for that first year where I'm going to have to pay for myself while I'm training full time to meet the standards for, by, by which you can actually attain federal funding. So, you know, there's all these pieces that go into it. And I think that we do ourselves a tremendous disservice if we're not absolutely focused and analytical, as well as the passion that's underlying that to want to achieve your potential. I'm, I make uh, no excuses for myself or, or others who, who don't do that kind of groundwork and set themselves up for success as much as possible at the outset. I, I appreciate your, your analytical mind and your analytical approach. There's no doubt in a, in, a, in a sport where literally hundreds of seconds matter, you mm -hmm. can't afford not to have a very clear plan and uh, be very, very dedicated to that. You know, and what you also reference in what you've just been sharing there is, okay, so you had the, the logical part of it. You had the, 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 the passion or the, the, the dream, the ambition, whatever it may be. You know, you know, as I was reading your book, I kind of reflect, it kind of came to me in a flash. I don't know if you had a chance to watch it, but over the last NFL season, the 100th season, they're doing a lot of celebrations of the greatest things that happened over 100 years. And the very last episode they had was um, uh, the, they were selecting the top quarterbacks of the last 100 years. And they had Bill Belichick in the studio along with a couple others. And I only caught a short glimpse of it, but it really struck me when Bill Belichick kind of st stepped back and looked at all the greats and specifically the top eight quarterbacks that they picked. He said, what struck him was there's, there's three things that all these guys have in common. And I'm paraphrasing here, but you know, there's definitely an element of hard work and dedication to the game. There's definitely talent and toughness was the second thing. But the third thing he said was all these guys had a chip on their shoulder. And in your book, you shared a lot of teenaged angst and you know you had a short fuse there was some intensity with you growing up did you see that part of your drive or a lot of your drive came from a chip on your shoulder and or something to prove yeah i mean absolutely so i wanted to start with the analytical side because sometimes we can get too far into you know uh, the passion and the drive which is the appeal right that's the emotional the emotive part of this and and look absolutely i mean i was a i was a kid with a lot of creative energy and sometimes I didn't always have an outlet and I got into some trouble and um, you know made it hard on my parents at times but yeah you know I I will say that my entire life I've always I guess if we go beyond a chip on the shoulder I describe it as feeling maybe a little misunderstood feeling like well I know I'm capable of more than what I'm demonstrating but I'm confused as a young man, sort of growing up as a teenager and as a young adult, I'm, I'm confused as to how, how to manifest that in the world. And I thought, I think a lot of young people go through this. And, you know, it reveals itself as a chip on the shoulder to people like, well, this guy's got a bit of an edge. And, 
I think of it, a lot of it is just someone is, is feeling some real drive inside of them and trying to understand how to put that out there and, and how to channel that and, and focus it so that it has a real, a real um, result or outcome in the world. So, yeah, I think growing up, I was kind of bouncing around and um, I did have this chip on my shoulder. And when, when Amy got pregnant and we found out we were going to be parents, you know, I, I told myself this narrative of like, well, the people are writing me off and they're saying that I, you know, I'm just this young teenage dad and that I have to settle. And, you know, whether that narrative is healthy or not, yeah, it's, it's as a young person, it was in my subconscious. And so I'm responding to the narrative I'm telling myself. So yeah, I did have a chip on my shoulder. There is a drive that I've felt my whole life. And it's interesting to talk to people and to try to understand like, where does that come from? How much of it is just predisposed, almost genetic and how, you know, nature versus nurture. And uh, look, we can go down the rabbit hole on that one, but to answer your question, absolutely. I've, I've always felt a strong impulse and drive to explore and to find out what I'm capable of. And I don't think necessarily to prove people wrong, although yes, in your younger years, especially as a, you know, a teenage male athlete, absolutely huge amounts of ego. Um, but then as that matures and you go into something like an Olympic level training camp, uh, the ego gets broken down anyways. So now it has to become about something deeper. And now you find out, you know, what are the real values that are driving you? And for me, it was really a strong sense of wanting to find out, you know, what was, what am I capable of? What are the, what are the boundaries of my will? How much can I overcome by sheer um, force of will? Well, you mentioned, I was going to kind of pull out that quote from your book. You said, I reframed my rowing quest as an exercise in discipline. It became bigger than rowing. It became a test of my resolve and my will. Why was that so, such a, such a driver? Why did that become the focal point or your reason for making this thing happen? Because I think it's so central to a life is, is our, our ability to have resolve and have a bedrock within us that, that shapes how we approach anything. And look, for some people, it might be a strong faith, it might be spiritual. Others, it might be this desire to shed, um, you know, a, a past they're not proud of or, or whatever it is. I just, I feel like once you've developed principles by which you're trying to live, why wouldn't you try to make those so strong that, you're, 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 you have a foundation in place that can get you through those times when, you know, motivation is not there and you feel like you're crumbling. You feel like everything's falling down around you. Like when you're, when you're in the abyss, you know, what is it that keeps you going? And I think um, while we all have a breaking point and we're all humans and, and whether it's me or you or anyone else, of course, uh, life can throw things at us where it's finally too much, no matter what your strength of resolve is. But, I mean, isn't it important to, to have some foundational element to your psychology and to your belief system that at, at your, you know, when you hit rock bottom, that there is a rock bottom there, you know, that it's not just this, this empty space, that you're actually hitting something. And I think that's so important to define that for yourself. And so, yes, for me, um, it was about, about my, my will and, and this affirmation of what it means to be a human being and to assert yourself upon the world and try to make something happen just based on your own abilities and faculties. 
And I think there's huge power in doing that. Yeah, and I think it's uh, you know one of the, my kind of mantras for this, for this podcast and my business is that we are always more capable than we think we are. And that goes for the grandest scale of life down to the, the thing in the moment that you're dealing with that is challenging you or you know pushing you to your own edge. And we're always more capable. And you know, sport, I think, is a great uh, metaphor for life in so many ways that when you think you're you spent, you're totally, totally spent, and that coach or your uh, Wayne is barking in your ear that you've got to keep pushing. That's one thing that I appreciate about my, my sporting life and the endurance sports is just you, you always know that there's something more, there's something more. And I think that's a lesson that probably goes um, unspoken a lot in today's age of easy convenience, certainly in the Western world of easy convenience and everything at our fingertips and social media, this and that. Um, what I guess I, that makes me also wonder in all the conversations you've been having with groups and audiences or just one-on-ones with people who, are, who kind of look to you and say, hey, give me some tips, give me some advice, give me some perspective. What are some of the common questions that you're getting back that you, you know, maybe this is a good opportunity to address those to a, a wider group? Number one question I get after a keynote is, but how did you actually not quit? Right. How did you, yeah, how did you, but, but how do you, like people are searching for how does someone get through um, the most difficult gut check moment on a journey? You know, how, how is one person able to somehow overcome uh, the inconceivable and another person in the same situation is not able to get through that? And man, that is a difficult question to answer because it's, as far as my experience has been, it's not a specific tactic necessarily. Um, and, and the best way I can try to start to answer it is around having a mental model and sort of frameworks and how you even approach life. And for me, one of the strongest releases I had from the hardest emotional times was actually putting myself in this mental model of, of fixed timeline. I, I feel like the mind craves boundaries naturally. And if you want to have real strength to what you're doing, you should have a fixed start and stop time to whatever it is you're trying to endure. So whether you're pushing in your business or your career, or for me as an athlete in this example, Olympians have the luxury of, you know, every four years, it's the Olympics. And in a post-Olympic year, a lot of athletes will take some time off, they'll reset. But when they come back and they've decided to commit to the next, to the next Olympics, it's like they're locked in. And that is a huge advantage that Olympians have over the rest of us just in business or you know, in the ambiguity of everyday life. So that's one thing I'll offer people is to say, have you committed to a specific timeline? Um, I know your company has short-term quarterly earnings you know, results that you're responsible for, but you as a leader, you're still responsible for long-term value. So within your organization or within whatever team you're working with, you still need to bring your mental model of what you're locked into, um, even if you're within not, you know, we can talk about being a, an entrepreneur and, uh, you know, that's one thing, but even in an organization, someone working a, a job, I feel like they still should be doing the same thing and it doesn't happen. And so sometimes that can turn on a light for people. But for me, that was a huge, a buffer against the hardest of times. And so I wasn't actually not quitting. I did quit. But then I said, well, I've also promised my former self that had all the analytics and all the information 
and made this careful decision. I promised that Jeremiah from two months ago, two weeks ago, or even two years ago, that I would do this and see this through. And I think, um, isn't that how you build confidence in yourself? Is yeah. to be able to keep promises to yourself. And then whether you screw up or you succeed, the fact that you've kept a promise to yourself, well, you really have something now. And you can bring that forward. And look, the other thing is, this is a long journey. Like it, sure, it only took me four years, but it took me four years. Yeah. <laughs> like that's still, you know, anything you want to achieve that's significant in this life. And you talked about how fickle we are with social media and instant gratification. Um, I still believe that, you know, real competency and skill the things that matter take years, maybe only one or two or three or four, but geez, when I was working a job, you know, I remember my first job at a university, it took me two years to really feel like I was in the flow and, and really competent. Same thing for rowing. It took me two and a half, three years before I really felt like I was kind of flying out there. And most people are not willing to invest um, an increment of time measured in years. It's usually weeks or months. And it's just not, it's not good enough for the reality of what it takes to become good at something. Yeah. Yeah. And, and not just be good at something, but to actually, you know, achieve something meaningful to you, whatever that goal or ambition might be. And I think people do, um, I think by and large, uh, you know, there's always, always examples of course, but by and large, our society is becoming a little softer. And I think there's, there's some good data behind that. You'll wriggle right back to, you know, the war generations, uh, what they had to live with and the struggles and strife. I think uh, sometimes we have it too easy and we kind of settle, settle in very easily. Um, I want to come back also to your, your the number one question, you know, how do you not quit? Because you talk in great detail and great emotional detail of that inner critic and that voice that was going through your head of those mm. midday workouts at the Y and you are just burnt out and the lactic acids are like boiling out of your ears. Um, how do you... Again, when, they, when you've got, when someone's got that inner critic really chirping at them to say either, you know, either this is too hard, I got to quit or like, what am I doing here? Like, this is just not going to work out. Like this is, it's not meant to be for me. What little lessons, I wouldn't say advice, but what was your personal experience with battling that inner critic directly? Like in the moment, I, I get what you're saying about boundaries over time, but in those moments, day to day, how did you deal with that? Okay. I think as that inner critic is whispering in your ear, you need to find a way to counter it with another voice that says, you know, I am worthless. And the way I thought about rowing, which as you've described is a pain, it's a pain sport. It's about suffering and being able to suffer longer than others essentially. And so there's an element of masochism there. And you know, you're, yeah, you've got this inner critic but at the same time, I remember telling myself, well, I wouldn't push myself this hard if I wasn't worth it. So I think that's interesting. You know, you actually have to feel like you're worth it in order to suffer a great deal in pursuit of a goal. And maybe that's counterintuitive to people. People are thinking, well, I have self-esteem and why would I put myself through? I'm not, you know, I'm worth more than this. And actually, I think you can flip that and say, well, you're actually only going to be able to go into the depths of your being and withstand, you know, the hard slog of work that it takes to really um, become excellent in any field if you think you're worth it to begin with. And so, yeah, okay. Like tips for dealing with the inner critic. Uh, let, let him talk, let him or her talk to you 
but but keep acting keep you know keep taking action keep letting reality and reflection upon action taken be your north star uh, and, and realize that the voice inside of you is emanating from all kinds of subconscious crap that you can't even control so you may as well take action and, and then reflect upon reality as carefully and closely as possible to inform your next action rather than the inner voice and realize that it's probably always going to be there so it never went away for me yeah. and in fact um every time i do a keynote speech i still get nervous i, I like pre-race nerves because i'm actually more of an introvert so it's not natural for me to get up to speak in front of 500 or a thousand people or whatever and but the more I do it, the more I remember that, okay, I've felt this way before. These voices have come up before, but then I've gone through it and everything's gone great. And so you, you remind yourself by action and, repeti and repetition over time that the outcome that you're these nattering inner voices are, are foreseeing for you actually never material, like often, more often than not, don't materialize. You know? yeah. So that's, I mean, that's my approach. Well, I, I, yeah, I, I'm, I align with your thinking as well. And the way I would often phrase it is just, just because you have a thought doesn't mean it's true. Yeah. So you're right. When that old subconscious thoughts from nowhere saying either I'm not good enough, this isn't going to work out, it's not meant to be, whatever the case may be. Yeah, that thought, you hear that voice in your head, but it doesn't mean it's true. It's no more true than, uh, or yeah, it's no more true than the possibility that you could become the pinnacle of whatever you're trying to pursue and you could achieve absolutely what you're after. Yeah, I, I consider myself uh, a tragic optimist <laughs> or, or, a, or a, a pessimistic dreamer. I, I don't know. Like I'm, I, have, I feel this great sense of negativity a lot in my life, and I feel like a lot of people feel this. And that sometimes when we look and we listen to these podcasts and we think, well, this person just has a different mental makeup than me. But I want to be very clear that, yeah, I mean, if you read my book, like you can see like I was battling inner self-doubt and despair. Um, you know, as bad as anyone would, um, you know, but you, it, it, you can still, like sometimes in my keynotes, I say like, a, like working sad is a superpower mm. because the crucible moments often, the moments that define the trajectory of a path towards a goal are often the times when you're doing something and your whole body and emotion is telling you not to do it and telling you to stop. And I'm not, I'm not talking about physical pain. I'm talking about emotion and psychology weighing you down and trying to pull you back. And yet you're still finding a way to work through that and take the actions necessary consistently, you know, to get to your goal. That is so important. And I think that you can be negative and still achieve great things. You yeah. don't have to become Mr. Positive. Um, I'm not Mr. Positive, but I do consider myself an optimist by virtue of the actions I'm willing to take no matter how I feel or think because it's based on principle and it's based on, on what I believe is, is possible. So even though you know, my son knows that and I have a big keynote speech coming up, well, better stay away from dad because he's you know, starting to channel in and he's getting all nervous. He also knows that this is me expressing positivity. This is me saying that you know, feeling, I'm not, I'm not my feelings, I'm not my thoughts. And this is what I choose to do. Right. I like to go to the flip side of the struggle and the strife and the, the, the doubts. And you talk a lot about resilience as an important part of that whole, your journey and just, you know, the journey through life. And I heard you say that the resilience is the courage to take one small step in that moment. And I, I've heard a lot of people talk about resilience in a variety of ways, but I haven't heard courage take center stage 
in the resilience conversation before. Mm. Why is courage the key point for you? Well, it's because, you know, resilience, most people talk about it and the way it's defined is, is the speed at which you respond. So bouncing back quickly. But I think there are better words for that. I think it's more persistence, perseverance, you know, very important things. But resilience to me is those moments when, yeah, you're, you're laid out and, you know, you may only have a few of these times in your life where you can go back and say, you know, how I responded or, or survived or got through that, you know, shaped the rest of my life um, without a doubt. And so I'm talking about moments where, you know, you're absolutely despondent and it could be something as uh, significant as, I mean, look, for me, I always say, you know, I had a moment where my, my family broke apart and, uh, you know, I was looking at my son and this whole vision of I had, I had about family and this nuclear structure and how things should be. My emotional low came halfway through this Olympic journey. And, you know, maybe I'm fortunate, right? I wasn't dealing with the death of a loved one or something even worse. But, you know, look, it's you know, like life is all relative. Um, and I think courage because courage is, is acting despite the fear. It's not, you know, there's so many quotes about it. it's not conquering the fear it's not overcoming it it's 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 sitting with it and, and still finding a way to move forward and often it's just the first step you know you can't see how the path might open up for you from this vantage point but you know even a small step forward often sudden can often can create whole new perspectives so that's the way i think about it yeah it reminds me of the old winston churchill quote of if you're going through hell keep going yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's so much, uh, so much out there, right? Nothing new under the sun when it comes to this stuff. But I really believe in those, those kinds of those quotes. I think there <laughs> there's some truth to them for sure. There absolutely is, and especially in the, you know the world you know I often talk about on the show the the state of the world that we're in, the, the chaos, the change, the uncertainty, the ups and downs, uh, you know, cl culturally, politically, uh, economically that have been happening. Like, there's a lot of think more things that people are de having to deal with. That affect their day-to-day -day life than we than generations before, um, and um, you know the, the I suppose you know the, even if you look at the data, the rates of burnout or stress or mental health challenges are uh, they're at an all-time high. And you go into great detail in your book in your post-Olympic struggles with mental health, experiencing anxiety and depression, and you know my 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 um, exposure to a lot of peak performance and peak experiences through books and through the clients that I work with, is that it's not uncommon for people when they really hit the absolute peak and pinnacle to have a real letdown afterwards. And um, you know, you, I know you spent a lot of time with the Canadian Olympic Committee and helping athletes transition out of, out of sport into, into real life, if you call it that, or the next stage of life. Yeah. What, do, what do elite athletes struggle with that perhaps most of the public would be surprised to hear? Well, it's just like you said, it's going from, say, winning three Olympic gold medals and having your whole identity wrapped up in being, I am the best in the world at this sport, to absolutely falling off a cliff, um, trying to figure out in free fall, who am I now? Um, whether your career is ended because of performance standards, maybe you're, you're getting older and you're, you're past your peak or injury or you're, you're cut from the team, whatever it is, when it's time to finally move on, it's, it's the chasm between 
you know, the absolute peak and what's next. Um, the best example for a lot of people today with their demographics is just retirement. Like both my parents are recently retired and my mom, you know, she had a few of her activities uh, that she's, she's now involved with to sort of fill the void. Some of them got canceled and she, you know, she's feeling quite down last week. Uh, she's better now, but like retirement is a great example of uh, something that's really difficult for a lot of people. And the athlete example, like going from Olympian to trying to figure out the rest of your life now at the age of maybe 25, you know, 25 to 35, it's, it's the, it's the, it's sort of the spread between, between the two sort of experiences and, and how wide that is compared to maybe some of the other experiences out there like retirement, other transitions. I think that makes it so hard for Olympians in particular. And so when the, when the cameras turn off and, you know, CBC or CTV stops covering the Olympics and the stories, um, you know, the book gets closed, those athletes are still out there and they're trying to figure out, you know, if they're not going to the next Olympics, it's okay. How do I retrain myself? How to go to university with people 10 years, 10 years younger than me? How do I deal with the emotional, um, situational depression that comes with rebuilding an identity from scratch. I mean, it's a real, real challenge. And I think those are some of the things people maybe don't think of. Yeah, I, I definitely aligned with you again on the, um, when, when you have a certain identity in a very, very strong way, even more so in a very public way, uh, when you have to reinvent yourself, that's, those aren't, you don't take reinvent yourself in high school. That's not a class that's offered. <laughs> it should be. Um, so we're not taught how to deal with that, quite quite literally. And it can throw, at its most fundamental personal psychology level, that can be very unnerving for a lot of people. I was fascinated by something you, uh, you again, you mentioned in your book, and I pulled the sentence out. You said, I believe athletes achieve the highest level in their sport precisely because of genetic dispositions that put them at greater risk of developing mental illness. What do you mean by that? I mean, I think athletes... Some athletes are able to do well because it's almost like there's a, there's a void in there or there's a hole inside of their, their psychology where they're, they're trying to fill it. And they can, you know, going training and, and punishing themselves um, is a way to address maybe some kind of underlying feeling of, uh, I don't know, feeling like they're not enough or feeling like you know, there's, there's something missing. And so this absolute throwing themselves into sport in a way that is almost unbalanced, and it is, it's a, it, gets, it becomes obsessive at the highest levels. Uh, I, I guess that's what I'm getting at is I, I wonder if the ability to do that in part comes from how people were shaped, you know, growing up and, and what, what holes they might be trying to fill. Like there's a joke saying that if you want to be, you know, a really fast rower, it's, it's great to have an unhappy childhood. It's <laughs> excellent for speed. <laughs> well, maybe that loops right back to the earlier conversation about having a chip on your shoulder. Yeah. That, that if there's this chip that really drives to push to, to, to demonstrate that you are good enough, or you've got something to prove, if you're not able to make that transition, it can be a very delicate transition to maintain drive and aspirations and high ambitions, but not coming from this almost dark energy of, of, that can cause a lot of mental illness challenges. Um, 
if people really hang on to that dark energy without that release or that outlet to really really direct it to it. Yeah, and I want to be careful not to sort of blanket, um, you know, make statements sort of to cover all athletes. But I think there are definitely, and I've seen it, and I've trained with athletes and experienced this myself, where, yeah, many, many are doing just that. And then yes, when you try to take that kind of energy, that sort of dark energy, and try to put that towards, say, accelerating a career in the workplace, it doesn't always work out. It doesn't transfer. Um, and you can, in fact, it, you can turn it in on yourself now. And so, whereas before as an athlete, particularly if you're in aerobics, well, really any, any sport and you're doing all this training, you have the release of the endorphins that's mm. um, rewarding you sometimes three or four times a day as well. That's sort of keeping your psychology stable enough to keep throwing yourself back into the, the pit of, of, of extreme training. Whereas now you go into the workplace or business or whatever, you don't have the same endorphin releases. Um, you, you're so used to using your body, but now, you know, if you're going to be doing something else, a lot of your time obviously has to go to this new endeavor and you're not able to get those, the, that endorphin hit as often. So I think that what I see is a lot of athletes have this energy and now it's just being turned back on themselves versus going into something like sport. Yeah, and there can be a real paradox. Uh, again, I heard you reference uh, in another conversation you were having, um, if you're giving advice to, to kids, uh, they're pursuing something, is to be kind, be kind to yourself. And on the other side, you, you, there's a paradox because having this angst or this drive or this chip and this hardness can really pursue someone to just squeeze out that extra 10, 20% of effort or perseverance or dedication. How, how do you balance that being kind to yourself yet having this fierce drive? Yeah, I mean, I think life is full of these paradoxes. I think there's incongruency that you feel with the push and pull of these things. And honestly, I think, man, that's what it's all about. You know, it's, it's finding a way. I don't have any easy answer. I struggle with it every single day. Um, yeah, it's, you know, it's opposing forces um, within yourself to look unless we're talking about becoming you know a, a, a monk or something like if you're trying to <laughs> you know in our western culture if you're trying to create outcomes and trying to achieve um, things in the world that are sort of we all recognize as you know whatever material success or success in terms of achievement um, then yeah that that does require uh, and maybe we can ask you know why is that? And is it worth it? That's another conversation that I think everyone has to answer for themselves. But while we're on that path, it's about holding imposing forces inside of you. And this is something I, I talk about in my keynotes as well, like that incongruency. I mean, I remember my, my national team coach, Mike Spracklin, he was such a polarizing figure. And yet, you know, he was clearly the best path to an Olympic medal. So my job and that of my teammates was to at times hold that incongruency of recognizing that, uh, you know, this is brutal and this guy is driving me nuts, but also this is what I've chosen to do. And he's the guy that's going to get us there. And I think life is full of these paradoxes that we, if we want to get to the next level, often have to find a way, never easy, to endure and to, and to put up with. Yeah, I agree. There, there isn't, an, isn't an easy answer, but maybe at the root of it again is, looking back to what you were saying earlier, is having a core 
uh, core, what I would call a core philosophy or core principles that you're operating under. And when you're faced with a paradox that you're trying to navigate through, just there's almost a, a maybe it's a trust or a faith or whatever your perspective mm-hmm. is to say, okay, here's another one. I can deal with this as long as I stick with it, kind of keep checking in with myself, uh, do some proper planning, and uh, when in doubt, uh, if I'm going through hell, keep going. And uh, yeah, and you're, you know, we're, we can we say these things, right? And these are all the right things, and these are the things we actually do. I'm not I'm not doing anything different than what everyone already knows, but I think you're absolutely right about again. The, what is your principle? What is your operating principle? What what is all this standing on top of? Because if the foundation's not there, then you know you quit. Maybe you hang in uh, for 100 days, but on 101, you'll quit. And so what is the thing underneath all that that's going to allow you to get through that day 101 when it's finally too much, where you actually, you know, you really do, you've given up, but then, you know, what is that switch that is flipped on that maybe allows you to continue? Like it's yeah. so important. Yeah, that's great. I'm, I'm glad you, you brought up uh, Mike Spracken because I wanted to ask you, something that he said to you that really resonated with you and has stuck with you is the body, the body lies to us. And what, tell us more about what, what that means and why, why that really resonated with you. Yeah. Mike used to say the body lies. Uh, you know, people tell you to quit, but you can will it onwards. <laughs> and, you know, he was right. Um, I remember at times being on the lake thinking this guy is crazy. He's taking risks with our bodies. He's going to push us into injury. But, you know, it always takes someone outside of yourself to push you into um, sort of the, the edges of your, push you towards the edge of your limit to actually really get you to what you're capable of, especially physically. It's just, I just don't think it's really possible to do it on your own. Um, so much of my ability to become a piece of this Olympic equation was the environment that I put myself in. And it was being pulled out of me. And instead of me asserting myself on the world, it was really more the people around me, including Mike, asking me a question, you know, can you meet the standard? And now it's up to me to answer it versus me having to form the question and answer the question. That's a lot harder to do. I don't think it's really possible in certain environments like elite aerobic sport. And so when Mike said, you know, the body lies, that's what what he's talking about. He's like, you know, you've got, you always have more in you. He also used to say, you know, if you can row 2,000 meters on the rowing machine in five minutes and 59.9 seconds, then you can do it in five minutes and 59.8 seconds and add infinitum. And, you know, there is no fixed limit. There is only uh, how far you're willing to push and how, how well the environment pulls that out of you to achieve that. So that's the kind of what he meant by the, you know, the body lies. You can will onwards. Also, you know, the power of the mind to overcome the immediate um, sort of response of reacting to pain or suffering, which is to recoil. And he believed that you could, you could override that, 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 that sort of almost fight or flight kind of level of, of response to, to pain. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree with that wholeheartedly. And I'm, I can almost feel my physiology getting re- reacting uh, uh, when I hear your, you tell your stories of your coach really pushing you to your body. You thought your body was going to break or explode. I've been, I, get, I've, I do triathlons and Ironman, and there's been times when I've been on the bike pushing it on the turbo trainer, and I literally am wondering, is my heart going to be able to take this? 
And of course, you know, after 48 hours of recovery, you feel fantastic. But in that moment, your mind really comes alive and it can tell you a lot of things. So I want to just loop back briefly to comment you just said kind of in passing is you said um, that you really don't think you can do it on your own. You've got to have someone outside of you. And I know you, you really believe in the power of coaches and, and the importance of that. And mm-hmm. as a coach, I'm a bit biased. I believe everyone would benefit from having great coaches. I suppose if someone's listening to this and they're either considering, um, you know, getting someone outside of them to help them in pursuing something, or maybe they're working with someone already, but it's not really working out. I don't know. Just the question that's popped in my head here is, what would you say? What are the what are the what's the criteria or what's the filter you might offer up when looking for not only a good coach for you, but a coach that's really, really going to get the absolute best out of you? What would be the criteria, the filter that you would look at um, in inquiring about someone? I would start with credibility. So um, I was always very careful to look for coaches that had been where I wanted to go and that um, had guided other people through the same path that I was going to be going through to achieve the same result that I wanted to achieve. So Doug White, my first coach, he was a club coach in Victoria, but he had coached at the national team level. Uh, in, in, in countries, including Australia and Canada. And so um, right away, I was struck by his experience and credibility. Um, and then, of course, Mike was the same thing. He had won maybe the second most Olympic medals behind the British, current British national team coach, one, you know, illustrious, one of the most illustrious rowing coaches in the world. It was clear that this guy had a huge amount of credibility, even though you could debate his methods. And then the second thing after credibility is um, I guess sort of, it's almost like any relationship after that, you know, what is the fit? I mean, do you, you know, how do you, how do you gel together? How do, how do your personalities, um, complement or fit in together? You know, you don't have to find someone that's exactly like you at all. I mean, uh, Doug, my first coach was, you know, very quiet, very calm, man, a few words. I'm very dynamic, you know, screaming out there sometimes and so I think if you can look for someone maybe who complements your deficits with strengths and maybe where you have strengths you don't need that in another person necessarily I think those are things to consider so I would look at those two maybe to begin with is absolutely credibility I mean I remember there were rowing coaches who kind of looked at me and you know a coach their greatest what drives them is is seeing the realized potential of their athletes, right? That, that's why they do it. Um, and so there were opportunities for me to work with other coaches who I could see were excited about the possibilities. Um, but they were, you know, they were trying different things and it was almost like they were still trying to sort out what their process was and what their beliefs were. And I wanted to be with someone who already had conviction and, and had a proven method. And maybe that wouldn't work for me, but I wanted to start there before I started, you know, trying something else. And so I was lucky and fortunate to meet my coaches um, that way, especially Doug White, my first coach. So those are the two things I would, I would think, uh, I would think of when I'm starting to think about who to work with. Now in my speaking business, same thing. I mean, I've, I've, I've paid and I've worked with people who are successful speakers who have created a, a strong business and, um, I've also, you know, I listen to podcasts and I, and I get different input, but when I'm paying money, it's, it's with people who have the credibility 
And uh, just like you would when you're purchasing any product, really, like you, yeah. you want to have a real understanding that this is going to solve your problem. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that as well. I think fit is very, very important because I think you can line up 12 great coaches or mentors um, and they can all be fantastic in their own right, but only two or three of them might be right for you. And I think it's very important that, that not only you, you spend the time uh, making sure there is that right kind of fit and you, you do gel with that person. And if it's not working out, you've got to be able to speak up and, and tell the coach, here's what you need, you need more of or less of. And uh, I think a lot of times people uh, put too much onus on the coach to get the results rather than stepping up and owning it themselves. Yeah. And you're not going to marry the first person you meet usually. Right. So. Unless you're sorry, did you marry the first person? No, I, I, I thought you, know, you, you at least had a, had a child with your high school sweetheart. Yeah. 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 I got, got pretty close, but uh, <laughs> you know, I, we should be willing to not give up also if we've met one coach and it hasn't worked out for us. Um, it doesn't mean that person's not a good coach. It doesn't mean that uh, you shouldn't find another coach, right? Like it's so funny because we seem to understand in certain areas of life that we need to keep trying and we need to keep, you know, if it didn't work out, you know, keep trying. If you failed your math test in high school, you study and you keep trying harder for the next one. And then it's like this idea of, outside accountability and building it into your path it's just not talked about growing up and so you try it once and then it fails and then you stop and i think that's the real tragedy you should keep going you know and it might take you three or four or five people before you find the right fit and i think that you need to normalize that and it should be okay i mean you do like you know we're in business so i do a lot of i have a sales process i mean i've got marketing you got to sometimes reach out. I've had big keynotes booked after reaching out seven times to the same person over the course of a year. So that tenacity should carry over into the structures you create for yourself um, to help you be successful, even when finding a coach. <clears throat> That's great. Um, just to kind of loop it all, this all together, you know, part of your message is about uh, re reimagining what's possible and what you can achieve in the next four years and leveraging your you know, very inspiring story. Um, for someone listening to this, if you had to bring all your thoughts and lessons together um, and someone said, I've got some big goal, I don't know how it's going to happen, when it's going to happen, what, is some, what are maybe one or two key things? I won't start talking about next steps that they should take because you, you've tackled a lot of that. But what are one or two key, key things you said? People really need to remember this. If they're going to embark on something big in a short period of time, if you could wish them one thing, one or two things to remember, to draw from, to really go after something that's big, big and important to them, what would you say? Well, first I would say, be very clear with yourself that you believe that it can be done. I don't think really trying to achieve things is um, something that should be take, undertaken lightly. Like you should be, you should be feeling very have strong conviction and, and strong belief that not that it can be done, not that it, that it will materialize necessarily, but that it is possible. Like that has to be fundamental because um, it's going to be so hard. So you have to have a strong belief that this is possible for you, not just based on emotion and passion and what you want to do, but based on hard facts as well and reality, like we talked about at the beginning of this conversation. Um, the second thing I th that comes to mind when you ask me that is 
you have to be prepared to um, have an absolute failure at the end of this. Like you have to just accept that it's just not going to work out just as much as you believe and hope and, and will work in, uh, in your favor to make it happen, to materialize the outcome, to, to get to the goal. If, if you don't accept utter failure, um, you're gonna, what's going to happen is you're going to start assessing yourself in the moment again. And I'm sorry, it's just so hard to do, to do like a big goal. And especially if you're compressing, like, like you, 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 the way you positioned it, you absolutely have to be willing to have this not work out. It's, so it's got to be, it's got to be about more than the Olympic medal or the money or the fame, you know, prestige. It's got to be about something fundamental. And it goes back to what I was saying earlier. For me, it was about the test of my will. And that even if I, if I got through this and I was still falling in the water when they picked the Olympic team, I had to know that there was still value in that for me. And, you know, that's crazy to some people. And that's fine. Then don't do it, you know, because I really think that you, you need to be able to see the value in a real true failure, not a half-ass failure because those aren't worth anything but a full on true failure. Now that's worth something. And you can take that, you can take that with you. And, you know, <laughs> that's not easy to do, but that's certainly how I wired my mind. Um, and I, and to be honest, I didn't do it initially. It came to that point, like you, like you, the quote in the book where I had kind of gotten into it. I realized just how big this mountain was that I decided to climb. And now I had to grasp onto something. And so for me, it became about my will. So secondly, yes, what is, like you have to be, you're, you're testing some element of your personal development and psychology in all of this that, that is actually bigger than that Olympic medal that you're chasing, whatever your podium is. So those are two things that I would say are essential. Yeah, I think that's bang on. And it makes me think, oh, I might play back. Some of that is, is, um, it's not just the pursuit of the result that you're after, but it's who you become in the process. And so if the result isn't there, if that is a failure of the result, you don't achieve the team, achieve the goal, achieve the championship, who did you become in the process? And if you've gone through all that and strengthened your will and your resolve, that will pay off in so many ways and have a ripple effect through your life. So I think that's important to keep that perspective in mind. Yeah, and I want to be careful here because I want to be true. I want to be honest. If I had failed it probably would have affected me for the rest of my life. Like I've seen teammates and friends who underperform at the Olympics and I have no doubt that it's going to just be part of them for the rest of their lives. And it's going to be a difficult you know, part of their lives going forward. I want to be very careful and specific that I'm not talking about like, it's just good to, you know, to try your hardest and fail. Like, like sometimes that is, you know, that can actually stop you from achieving the next goal. It can actually hinder you. I'm talking about, like, if you're going all in and trying, you are actually developing specific skills and endurance and levels of resilience and, and really, like, things that are real, like real things that can then help you. I'm not talking about just, you know, feelings or emotions that you get of it or, or, or self-esteem and having seen it through. I'm talking about, like actual kind of competencies and skills and like mental strengths, like real things that, that is what's going to help you. It, it, it's not this, the story. And, you know, it, 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 it is actually things that almost could be measured, but, but can't quite be measured. You know what I mean? Yeah, so yeah. I want to, I always, 
I, I hate when I like listen back to an interview or podcast I've given. I'm like, oh, I just said what everyone says. No, like, um, any if I've had any kind of success, um, and look, I'm just getting started. <laughs> it's because of 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 real constructs that I've created out of an experience that I have forwarded and brought with me into the next thing. It's not that I've done something and then I just sort of have this sort of passive reflection and then I go on to the next thing. I'm, you know, I'm bringing, I'm, I'm pulling forward real impressions that have actually shaped me and how I approach everything I do into the next thing. So it's, it's very specific and there's very, like, those are the things that actually help you. And I just, sorry, I just wanted to clarify that a little bit. That's great. Amen to all that. I, I, I hear what you're saying. And, and uh, I appreciate the extra distinction that you've added in there. So before I ask the final question, Jeremiah, I really enjoyed speaking with you today. Where can people learn more about your work or get in touch with you? Be the best way to do that. Well, I'll be honest with you. <laughs> There's not a lot of places. Because I'm so focused on one thing at a time, right now I'm a professional speaker. So I'm trying to become a better speaker every day. There's a business and marketing and sales around it as well that I'm always trying to improve. And honestly, I, you know, I really believe in getting one plate spinning fully before you start doing other plates. So I don't have a huge social media presence, but you know, you can go to the, uh, the fouryearolympian.com uh, if you want to bring me out for a talk. Um, that's a, that's what that website uh, uh, is intended to do. Um, and I'm on social media on Twitter at Jeremiah F Brown and Instagram the Four Year Olympian as well. Um, not very active because I'm working towards my very focused current goal, and it's not. It's, it's not content. It's not to broadcast. That's great. Great. Well, we'll make sure we have all, the show, uh, the, all those links in our show notes. So the final question, Jeremiah, for your time on the Ignition Show, what do you hope to ignite in the world? Oh, I love that. What do I hope to ignite in the world? I hope to help as many people find a way to go a little further than they were maybe prepared to before they encountered me. In, in whatever way that that was. I want to give people the courage to compete a little longer because I think that's where all the magic happens. So I want to give as many people I encounter the courage to compete, to dig in, and to go further. I know it's bang, bang on, and I, uh, I appreciate you willing to put yourself out there. I know uh, your, your Olympic experience uh, was in 2012, and I love the fact that you say you're just getting started. Uh, and you've got a very promising future ahead of you. And I'll be, I look forward to, to staying in touch and watching your journey and uh, continue to learn from you. So thanks very much, Jeremiah. Thanks so much. As always, we want you to get the most of the time that you've invested listening here. This show is only valuable if you apply what you learned. And most learning is generated from reflection. So we'd love to hear from you and your reflections about what you learned and found interesting. Join the community and go to theignitionshow.com slash connect. That's theignitionshow.com slash connect. And let us know what struck you and what was it that you heard today that you really needed to hear today. You can leave us an audio message or join our Facebook group and participate in the conversation there, where we'd love to hear your comments or follow-up questions. Also, be sure to check out the after show of this episode. That's a shorter follow-up episode where we, it's my wife and business partner, Sarah and I, talk about what we learned and what we took away from this conversation and how these ideas have shown up in our lives on a more personal level. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate the show, or leave a review in iTunes. It helps others find us and helps us get better. 
We read every single review and comment that comes to iTunes, Facebook, and our website and respond to as many people as we can. And lastly, remember, whatever you dream of, whatever you hope for, and secretly wish you had, you're closer than you think you are, you're meant to have it, and you absolutely deserve it. Until next time, I'm Chris Jansen, and this is The Ignition Show.